You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to the 602 Club, Track FM's local watering hole. So excited to be here tonight. We have a, a very special episode. It has been a while since uh, this person has been on the show. And it's been a while since it's just been the two of us talking about the thing that brought us together all the way back at the beginning, which was to talk about some Star Wars. And I am so excited to have my co-host from Aggressive Negotiation and fellow a Star Wars aficionado, John Mills here with me tonight. I'm pleased as punch to be here, Matt. It has been so long since I've been on 602 Club that I do not remember the last time I was on 602 Club. Which It was probably a Star Wars episode. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm it could certain have been of solo, that. maybe. Hmm. That could be could it be that long? It's well, a either long way. Time ago. This is either a galaxy joyous, far, far away. Yeah, this is either joyous news for somebody, or everybody just hit stop and they'll come back next week. So, <laughs> hey everyone. <laughs> well, you don't want to do that because tonight we are going to be talking about Claudia Gray's Master and Apprentice, the brand new novel that has come out just recently about uh, Qui Gon and Obi Wan during uh, Obi Wan's apprenticeship. And I have to say, I think we have a heck of a show for you tonight as we're going to be talking about this. Christy was not able to make it either, so it will just do the two of us. So sit back, relax, and listen to us enjoy talking about this book. I hope everybody's gotten a chance to read it because, well, I think you should have read it before you listen to this episode because we're going to spoil the book rotten. Um, Now... Before we dive into the book and talk all about it, um, don't forget you can find us, of course, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts, hit us up with a star rating review over there on iTunes, uh, and we will call you out on the show and thank you for your review. You can find us on Twitter at TrekFM. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. Maybe you would like to join in the conversation with all of the different listeners from around the world who listen to Trek FM. To do that and join in that conversation with any of the shows, go over to the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group on Facebook that you can find by going to the search field there on Facebook and typing Babel. Or if you're on our website at track.fm, any of the show pages have a little button that says discussion. Hit that, and it'll let you into the group. And then... You can always send us an email. Christy and I love getting emails, so do that at trek.fn slash contact, choose a show, and we will get to respond in kind. So, John, this was one I think we were both very excited to, to get a chance to talk about since we have been on aggressive negotiations covering the Jedi Apprentice series, which covers the time period um, that this book does in some ways. Um Obviously, uh, it starts when Obi-Wan is younger, So, uh, but it, it has uh, a lot of the same characteristics. And, and so, um, you know, I think coming into this one, it was it was one we were both looking forward to. And, you know, I think one of the things I uh, just wanted to, I, I felt like the best place to start kind of talking about this book is a master and an apprentice. You know, this book really is, in many ways, mostly about the relationship between Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. 
Um, and, you know, I, I think Claudia Gray really picks up on what we see in the, you know, the first prequel in The Phantom Menace, where there is some discord between them. They don't always think alike, you know, Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon. And so she really picks up on that and I think uses that as an impetus to tell this story. Um, at this point, I think, if I remember correctly in the book, I've read it twice, but I still sometimes details, you know, get past my... But I think he's 17, Obi-Wan. So, and if I remember correctly, he's 25 in The Phantom Menace. So there's still some ways to go. Um, But what did you, what did you think of that? Because I felt like, I I felt like at at the beginning it was slightly jarring. um, But the more I read, the more and more it really, the way she took the story, it it kind of made sense. Uh, I, you know, I'll say that just from the beginning, I think that she captured... Uh, what I see is the authentic relationship between the two of them. Um, in terms of the age thing, it definitely recasts Qui-Gon's age, which I think before this point had sort of been accepted as about Obi-Wan's age in A New Hope when we encounter him in The Phantom Menace. And this de-ages him a little bit, which is fine. Yeah, I think she says he's like 40, maybe. Right. So, yeah. So he's, yeah. he's you know, he's a solid. He's closer decade. to like Lem Neeson's age at that point. Right. Honestly, right, exactly, yeah. exactly. Which is fine, um, but it was unexpected. But you know, I, I, that's the nature of things. If it's not stated explicitly on screen, it's up for grabs a lot of the times. But um, I, I really think because one of the things that we've raved about with that Jedi Apprentice series that we talked about over over on Aggressive Negotiations is the the feeling of Qui Gon is right throughout this whole book. I could hear Ewan McGregor and his voice and Liam Neeson's voice in these lines. I could hear their cadence. I could hear the delivery. I could hear even the wisdom. I think that Gray has done such a masterful job of capturing their voices that it is, I think, the strongest element of the book. That is the hook that carries me through. There are definitely interesting plot you know, there's a great story, interesting plot details to keep things moving, but she has captured what I consider to be uh, the Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan that I always thought that I knew when I met them in The Phantom Menace, uh, if that makes any sense. No, I think I think you're right on target with that. Um, you know, the, the thing that is so important in any book like this uh, in any expanded universe book for any universe you know whether it's star trek or star wars or you know anything um is you want to feel like you understand the the voice of the character like that it's true and like jude watson with the jedi princess series i think you're absolutely right she's able to do that and i think part of the way that she does that so well is that you can even and she'll even make a comment on like a smirk that they make or mm-hmm. like a raise of the eyebrows kind of thing or just a facial expression that really sells it, you know, so you can totally see, you know, Lim Neeson making that face or Ewan McGregor making that face uh, and the way that they would play off of each other. Um, there are some moments of humor between uh, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, which are just so endearing and come across just a- as much as they did in The Phantom Menace. Like those, you know, moments when Obi-Wan would say something like, 
well, you really were right, master. Negotiations were short. You know, mm-hmm. like that kind of mm-hmm. thing. You you get that kind of playfulness. Um, and there isn't as much of that here, obviously, because as we mentioned, they have this kind of strained relationship. And, you know, to me, watching them kind of come through this was, in many ways, I felt like we kind of see this play out largely over the entire book with this idea of miscommunication or non-communication between certain factors really causes a problem mm-hmm. in, 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 in it, it's relationally and just it helps actually create some of the biggest you know drama we see in the book is this kind of real lack of verbal communication between people and um you know i, I really liked how she kind of used different characters. She uses another character she creates for this story, uh, Rael Alvaros, um, and, you know, his ward there on the planet of Bajal, um, uh, and their miscommunications and their lack of, of, it's really just a lack of talking to one another and really listening to each other. And we see that, at a core with Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan that they never have quite been able to kind of come together because there has been this, and the book even starts off with this, like this idea that they just can't quite connect. And part of that really comes down to is that Qui-Gon doesn't seem to know that it's important for him to actually verbalize certain things to Obi-Wan. And Obi-Wan being the Padawan doesn't quite know how to ask for those things in that relationship, in that power dynamic. And I thought that was fascinating to see because it's also, I think, a thing as we expound even further on that, that's a problem that I think the the Jedi as a whole have. And I, I felt like she is so good about placing the, these little themes that play out then across multiple aspects of the story and play together so well. Sure. Uh, you see that, you know, to your point, played out in, in these interactions that echo Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan when Yoda talks with Qui-Gon or when Qui-Gon recalls the different ways that Dooku and Rail spoke to him. And there was even an, an odd sort of, um, uh, you know, dissonance between Dooku and Rail that Qui-Gon never quite under. And so you see this what I think is a very interesting, uh, like a generational inheritance in the Jedi of miscommunication, where these duo relationships are in themselves dysfunctional in some fashion, and it sort of creates cracks in the base for the Jedi as a whole because that's going to make a unified um, consensus about what to do and where to go and how to do things all the more difficult. And I think that what is also very interesting is that the more cantankerous Yoda comes through here, um, and it comes through in such a way that you can understand even better now, you know, because we've talked about this, every sequel and therefore prequel or whatever should give you a greater understanding of what came before. And Qui-Gon's 
interactions with the council are thrown into that much more relief because of this book. And it gets back to what you're talking about, about the dysfunction, about Qui-Gon doesn't even just blurt out in The Phantom Menace uh, that he thinks that Anakin is the chosen one. He said, you know, he he just brings it up in a roundabout way. And Mace is the one that has to complete it and say, you mean, you think it's this boy? You know, like there's no upfront nature of anything. There's revelation as relationships continue. And I guess that's a very realistic sort of thing. But again, speaks to the whole theme of closed communication between people. I think what we're saying here, John, is that we have a failure to communicate. Which is the way he wants it. Well, he gets it. Yes. <laughs> you know, and and, and I, I, you know, you mentioned something I, I want to catapult off there because it's something I was thinking, I've been thinking a lot about. And I feel as though you mentioned this idea of dysfunction and it feels as though that we get so much, we, we get twice in like so many um, paragraphs where Qui-Gon hears what the mandate of the Jedi is. He hears it from Obi-Wan and he hears it from Yoda. And I feel as though as I've been reading through these th this prequel series more and more, especially with the new canon that they've been doing, that this adherence to the mandate has become a legalism for them. That has led them to miss some really important things um, that they just don't deal with. And one of those is dealing with things personally and especially relationally. It's like the Jedi have, have lost the ability to deal with attachment at all because they're just not supposed to have it. We just don't do that, which has also led them even uncomfortable, it feels like, with even talking about the reality of it being there. It's like they just deny that it's there and shove it under the rug and pretend like it's not instead of it's like... It's almost Jedi seem to need the ability to just be open and honest with things, and in this uh, this keeping it kind of hidden or never talked about um, is what actually makes it worse. Because I mean, with like Rail's story, it feels as though he needs a he needs like a Jedi therapist to go talk mm -hmm. about what it was that led to this, all these kind of things. But it it seems as though the Jedi are afraid to really open up the discussion and allow people to be open so that they can actually move forward with things instead of just think, keeping things shoved down as if that's ever really helped anybody. <laughs> I would counter with that, that I would say that there is um, definitely, you can see that with Averroes. He's He doesn't talk the way that he should with other people about what's really hurting him, what's really at his core. But you see in openness in Qui-Gon. So I, I do think it's a, a person by person sort of thing, you know, but Qui-Gon has to overcome his pride. I think that it's not necessarily an institutional pride. I think that it's a singular pride that's infectious across the order. And in, and it's in more stark um, portrayal here because rail and Qui-Gon are students of somebody whose pride left him, you know, going down a path to leave the order, you know, Dooku, who winds up turning to the dark side. And so you have, I think, this this pride, again, that's, you know, 
it's the generational inheritance of flaws. And so I think that the difficulty and the one that I think I came to realize, because I I agree with you about the dysfunction of the Jedi. We've, you know, we've talked about that, but in this book, I saw it more as a series of individual failings. And the problem is, isn't that it was institutionally mandated to be that way is that there was no institutional uh, facilitator for its release. There was no, yes, yes, yes. There was no place for them to go to, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. like a, a Jedi confessional sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. That sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 you know, it does feel like in many ways the Jedi need, uh, you know, Jedi psychologists to be able mm-hmm. to, you know, talk about things. And, and you know, just because Jedi have the force doesn't and it doesn't mean that they don't have massive, probably PTSD when things happen, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so communion with the force helps, but so does communication and actually talking about it. And I think, you know, I think you're right on pinning the fact that Dooku becomes the link there um, between these generations because... Qui-Gon and, and Rail seem to be the ones who have difficulty verbalizing because Dooku wasn't, he's not loquacious, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. and relationally. Um, and, you know, in a couple of weeks, we'll actually talk about the uh, Dooku Jedi loss. So there's some nice connection there. Um, but absolutely, I think that's a key. And, and you see that because, you know, one of the things that, the very beginning of the book, you know, um, Obi-Wan kind of confronts Qui-Gon when he finds out that he's been asked to be a part of the council and Qui-Gon didn't tell him. And they have that moment in the Padawan dojo. And he's like, why did you never... Te- I, I guess I figured out why you never taught me any of the other advanced lightsaber forms. And it's because you were always really planning to to not have me as a Padawan very long. And that becomes a running theme throughout the book of, of what was it that, why did Qui-Gon make that choice? And Qui-Gon finally tells him, and it's such a great lesson, which, and it, and it actually explains so much of why Obi-Wan is actually such a great, um, saber master in the end. I mean, why he can take down somebody like Grievous. It brings back to mind Stover's episode three novelization when Mace tells him, you're the best of all of us because you're the master of the, the, the base form which makes you almost, you know, impervious. So, mm-hmm. which is what Qui-Gon tells him here. He's like, I kept you at that form because I wanted it to be so routine for you. I wanted it to be second nature that you didn't even have to think about it so that it would make you, he even calls it something like almost unstoppable. Um, and so, and, and Obi-Wan says, you only had to tell me that. It's just like, mm-hmm. There's this whole thing where there's and and I think too, um, Claudia Gray has kind of hit on something where sometimes men don't say the things that they should to one another, mm. you know, um, when things actually need to be said, and uh, I think that's definitely a problem that we see here, especially with Qui Gon and Obi Wan. And once that dam has broken, their relationship gets so much better. Um, and, mm-hmm. and they move forward. I mean, spoiler alert, they move forward throughout the rest of this book and become even closer and become what we see in, in episode one. And they have, a, a, it seems like a very good working relationship from then on one to which, you know, 
Obi-Wan has, you know, the book ends with Obi-Wan at his funeral thinking to himself, why wasn't it me that died? Why was it you? You know, mm-hmm. like, um, and so you get this very deep relationship and it all broke because Qui-Gon finally just opened up a little bit emotionally and said, this is why I'm doing this. And it just, it brought to mind how important verbal communication is for people and affirmation. Like, you can't just assume that somebody knows what you're thinking or why you're doing something. Most people need to hear it, you know, and Mm -hmm. that was a really important key to this book. And I thought that was really great to see that that ended up being the key to their relationship was just something just finally got said that needed to be said that opened the doors for the rest of everything to happen. Right. Yes. And I think that there is... um just just as a, a a coda to that thought there is a um i get i guess a it brings the old question back because as part of this uh, you know deepening of their relationship Qui-Gon has a realization where he says i think that the council put you with me because the way for you to rebel was to become a rule follower, basically. I'm paraphrasing there. Yeah, he says the perfect Jedi. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, and they chuckle because they say, well, I guess Yoda outsmarted us. And what I found in that moment, unintentional or not, but I want to believe that it was intentional because I think that every work that I've read from Claudia Gray in the Star Wars uh, galaxy really seems to be one that is rooted very deeply in a, a core understanding of, of these relationships and how they work. But I see an echo there of Anakin training Ahsoka. And I see the old question rear its head of what would have happened with Anakin. Because if your Padawan is rebellious and you yourself are rebellious against the council and it produces Obi-Wan then Yoda's uh, objection to Obi-Wan taking a uh, non-traditional apprentice suddenly seems, it makes even more sense, basically. And it does bring back that question again of, if Qui-Gon had lived, would things have gone differently? Yeah, it is. I mean, it it, it does make things very interesting because, you know, you see two this and this is something that kind of goes along with um this this you we mentioned earlier dooku this dooku factor right this mm-hmm. because at the very end of the book obi-wan is thinking about having to train anakin and how he is going to choose to believe what qui-gon believed about prophecies and you know the fact that both rail and qui-gon are taught by dooku who has a predilection for understanding ancient Jedi mysticism and prophecy, which is not something that's normal for the Jedi at this point, because they see it as a way of um, turning to the dark side, the desire to know the future, which turns into a means of control, really. And um, I thought that it was really interesting then that we get the story of that it's it's kind of Dooku's fault in some ways that Qui-Gon ends up being somebody who believes in Jedi prophecy 
so that we end up with him at this point where this whole part of this story is about Qui-Gon moving from the person who respects Jedi prophecy, right? But he doesn't believe that it's literal. But he goes from being somebody who thinks it's metaphorical to being literal throughout this storyline. And we get the backstory with him and Dooku and Rail to, to fill all, in all those gaps. So we get this Dooku factor. But I thought it was fascinating the way in which we finally we, we see what it is that made Dooku believe that Anakin is the chosen one. And also that we get a, a picture of what will lead him to most likely continue to test the force out uh, and look and and really, I would guess, start to research Jedi mysticism that will lead him to, you know, figure out how to bring his consciousness back from the netherworld of the Force, mm-hmm. which... You know, I, I just, when she went that way, I mean, this whole thing blew my mind. Yes, and I, what's great about it for me is that the thing I still remember, um, having seen The Phantom Menace uh, originally, talking about it with my friend Mike, and this feeds into, yet broadens, our read of Qui-Gon even bringing up prophecy in The Phantom Menace, was we always read the council's reaction to Qui-Gon claiming he found, you know, the chosen one as the child of prophecy and all of that. Now, granted, this is how we read it back then before this material came forward, but we read it as, uh, you know, the council's reaction was basically, oh, geez, he's done it again. This he's okay. Like it was almost like Qui-Gon was the crusader going out and, you know, oh, I found the chosen one. Oh, I found this thing. Oh, I found this. And we sort of, you know, it wasn't that exaggerated, but that was how we sort of saw the council's reaction to it was, of course, Qui-Gon found the chosen one. Yeah, right. Okay, sure. Um, And this, I think, feeds into that because of the fact that he does become such an adherent to the prophecies. But what I find wonderful is the fact that she includes and I I even highlighted it where he has the realization that eludes Dooku which is the the path to the dark side with prophecy is that you therefore try to leverage the future and you try to control it and you try to control everything by knowing it ahead of time whereas knowing the future is about surrendering to it and letting it happen it's just a pre you you know what's coming but it's because it's your duty to accept that that's what it's going to be and you know relax and lean into it and be ready to do your part when that time comes yeah i absolutely i mean i highlighted the same section uh of his realization that it like you mentioned it's this idea of surrender and it, he even thinks to himself that only through surrender could the force truly be known, which I think helps you understand, you know, when you get to like the um, Empire Strikes Back and, and Yoda talks about the ways that we use the force. They're not for control. Um, they're for knowledge and defense. And we kind of get that here with with Qui-Gon and, and this this realization of understanding it, like because he even makes a, a mention earlier about the the struggle where the Jedi are and they become too wrapped up in their mandate and not the will of the living force. And that's where this whole idea comes from that we'll really see play out in the Phantom Menace where 
Qui-Gon is so much more about truly understanding the Force, knowing what it's saying, and going along with its flow. And what I think it really means is that, and I mean, it's that spiritual idea of being in tune with the, with what it is that you believe in to the point to where you are following along and realizing that there is a will of the Force, that it has a plan. Um, and, it you know, it's it's kind of a whole like um you know predestined thing you know like the force has predestined certain things apparently and that that it brings to mind to, to those who know the force well these abilities to see the future but the way in which um you react to that me- makes all the difference and i think that was something that's just really really cool um but i think it really deepens this whole thing that I think something that you and I talked about with the sequel trilogy about this idea of prophecy, but also this idea of relics and all of these kind of things. Mm -hmm. And so I'm seeing that more and more in the literature. And I'm wondering if, you know, there's something to that for what will come um, at at the end of of nine. So, um, but I just love this here because I, I think that Claudia Gray does such a great job of weaving this all together. It also does a good job of, I think, showing just one more place where this Dooku factor is there, but also this this factor of what the Jedi have been losing over the centuries of mm-hmm. being on Coruscant and being too just, uh, yeah, well, you know, they, they, they really are in this lofty ivory tower and some, uh, you know, they're, they're starting to lose something of themselves. Yeah. I, you know, and, and Rail Avros uh, directly calls that out. And what I find so interesting about his character is he does call it out. He rightly calls it out. Um, and, it, you know, it's something that you, me, other fans have all, you know, talked about. It's like, you know, the, the relationship with the Jedi to the Republic and all of those sorts of things. But on top of that is Rail rightly calls it out. But at the same time, he's overcompensated because there's attention paid to the fact that he has purposely retained uh, more colloquial speech rather than the more formalized that, the, that a Jedi might use. Yeah, that if he, you hear him, uh, when you listen to Jedi Lost, um, he has a like a Texas twang to his voice, which that's I love that that's his, that's his colloquial speech is to have a drawl. Well, <laughs> we all know people from Texas can cause trouble, so that's fair enough. That's true. But, I mean, just look at me. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but... You know, he's he's overcorrected. The sense that I got from him, which was really neat, was that he was a uh, not not directly, of course, but he was what I would call a Han Solo Jedi. Rail Avaros is the kind of Jedi that I think we all grew up thinking of before the prequels, that this is what a Jedi was going to be like. He was going to be cool. He was going to be slick. He was going to, you know, talk, uh, you know, unrefined. He was going to be kind of messy and you can see that why it wouldn't why it would be an indulgence on the part of the Jedi to have that. But at the same time, right, the Jedi are willing to make all of these little you know, Avaros is not the first character we found where they make these little adjustments to the rules to accommodate somebody's style and let them be who they're gonna be. And it it raises its own question of, well, 
why couldn't you adapt with everybody? Why couldn't you relax a little bit with, you know, everyone and let them do their own style instead of chasing them instead of say, you know, don't Anakin, don't do anything unless you talk to me or the council first. And there seems to be, I think, and I think this gets back to what we were talking about with communication is if you don't have open communication, there's an erosion of trust. And so I think that there are times where you have somebody like Windu who has a real hard edge about being a Jedi. And I think that's because people aren't communicating. And so some people, and maybe the order as a whole, overcompensate where they are trying too hard to hold on to this, um, you know, I, I know that I'm sort of rambling and I hope I'm trying, I hope I'm getting my point across here, but it's, it's almost like there's a person by person, like when two Jedi talk one-on-one, it's cool and they're understanding. And w- when they finally do open up and when they finally do open that line of communication, but when it goes on the macro and the Jedi order as a whole can't communicate with that one Jedi. And it, I think it speaks maybe to the fundamental error in having the order organized in the way that it is at all. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're making a lot of sense. You know, the, the idea of, you know, giving accommodations to rail who comes to the temple at the age of five, which is very late for Jedi. Um, you know, they usually come to the temple as they're brought as babies and, uh, you know, he knew his family. He um, also was somebody who, who knew enough of his culture and that kind of kept him separate from everybody else in the temple. And then it became a marker, again, the Dooku factor, a marker of pride for him to not be like anybody else at the temple, to continue to speak the way he spoke, not adopt like a Coruscanti accent, uh, to be somebody who you know, looked shabby all the time, took took pride basically in looking like a ruffian, um, a Jedi, a Jedi ragamuffin. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, being somebody who, you know, as we see in the book, uh, is not afraid to get laid every once in a while, you know, um, screw yep. celibacy, you know, um, which we, you know, know that the, some Jedi did um, as long. And, you know, I mean, as he mentions in the book, you know, it's not getting in the way of anything. Um, we have that kind of understanding. It's cool. Um, so, but I mean, it, it all goes to feed into this, this character who has worked because I think of his pride to kind of keep himself separate and instead of come together. And I think I really, really like what you said there about this idea of like the Jedi as a whole, and I think this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's just that there is a, a systemic thing that's happening there, which is keeping them from dealing with the reality of what it means to let go of attachment in the way that they're meant to. And it feels as though like there needs to be the ability to talk about these things because they are going to happen. I mean, Rail even mentions earlier um, in the book, like, you know, we grow close to our masters, you know, we spend 10 years with these people. How could they not become like family? And so again, it's like, you need the ability to be able to really communicate and kind of talk through these feelings and issues and all the things that you have, because 
it's not like they're not going to be there. All beings have these things to which, you know, they begin to have feelings for one another. And therefore, to be able to put those aside, like, and in fact, we even see in the book, um, you know, Obi-Wan, he is in trouble. He's about to die. Qui-Gon comes to save him and he's like, no, Qui-Gon, leave. Go save yourself. You know, that selfless act. Like, we see exactly what the Jedi are meant to do, which is, do not think about me, you know, that, you know, to give up that love and let it go. Like, we see that, but not everybody can get there. And it's like, you just need a place to be able to talk through these emotions. (laughs) Exactly. You, you, You do. And I think there's also, uh, I applaud Gray for bringing up the fact that, and again, this is an echo of something Anakin says. Anakin actually has a bit of wisdom in Attack of the Clones when he says, you know, attachment is forbidden, but we're encouraged to love. He's right. So this idea of self-sacrifice and your willingness to lay down your life for somebody else, your willingness to uh, give up that which is, you know, most precious in order to protect and defend others is a form of love. And I think that uh, to your point about talking about it and everything, it's that there is a there seems to be a baseline confusion about the difference between romantic love and, uh, I guess, platonic love. You can love somebody without it being physical. And I think that that is the thing that the Jedi would wind up struggling with, is the Jedi code would be saying, okay, don't get into a long-term serious relationship that's going to distract you from being a Jedi and hamper your ability to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But... If you form a bond with someone, like Obi-Wan formed a loving relationship with Dex. They were friends, right? And there, so there is, there is a kind of love there. And it is, um, I think it's very interesting because Rail is the one that seems focused on the idea that love therefore means physical intimacy. Right. He's got that hang up. In a sense. And it actually makes me even more curious again about Dooku. Dooku produced both Rail and Qui-Gon. Now, granted, when we meet Rail, he's uh, it, at, after a traumatic event in his life, which has you know broken him a little bit. And this assignment has been a, a, an attempt at giving him a way to work through it, I guess. But not said as much. Like, it, it's so... Again, it gets back to that communication thing. It's almost like they make an attempt to help him heal, but not on healthy terms. Um, but how do you know? How does Qui- how do Qui Gon and Rail both come from the same master? How does Dooku come from Yoda? Because now we have our first little hook in there, where. Yoda is wise enough to give Obi-Wan to Qui-Gon to turn Obi-Wan into, you know, the perfect Jedi, right? Is that possibly Yoda realizing his own failings with Dooku and trying to break that cycle and say, okay, this is how we're going to fix things? Because that's the same, you know, one of the reasons that Ahsoka is given to Anakin is to make him learn how to deal with loss 
because he's going to have to say goodbye to her at some point. And uh, of course, Anakin fails spectacularly. But um, so, you know, I, I just think that adds, you know, a, a very interesting layer uh, on its own. Yeah. You know, to me, I, I really enjoyed the character of Rail, and I thought he was just a really great addition to uh, the you know the Star Wars saga and uh, a great addition to the story, like you mentioned, of from the Yoda, Dooku, Rail, Qui Gon, Obi Wan. Like you get all these characters in a row, and you you see how the, they're influenced and 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 how they kind of turn out the way they do, and it makes for such a, a really interesting story. And it's really a microcosm of the Jedi Order in and of itself. And I think you know coming down to it yeah i mean this whole thing really does become about um a lack of communication within the jedi order and i do think that part of that has become about them focusing more on mandate and then it has about being connected to the force because if you were truly connected to the force you would be able to sense what's going on in somebody and then create that conversation there's a moment in the book where Qui-Gon realizes that he, if he had really probed the princess, that he would have realized what was there. But he didn't because he took her at face value instead of realizing that people can hide who they are inside and, tr- and, and what they're truly feeling. And so he realizes that moment that he basically had messed up he he says to himself i could have sensed it if i had tried to sense it um and yet he only just trusted his own instincts instead of those of the force and you i think you kind of see this struggle with the jedi of everything has become so much more about um the external than the internal uh for them and especially with the republic and all and that externalness has is the help is they've lost something, which is you know the importance of what we'll see with that just Jedi mysticism, the understanding of how prophecy can actually benefit the Jedi Order, um, and all of these things. It, it's just, and part of that is just because they've they become kind of. It seems like they're just become kind of basic, you know, um, and and. Instead, they've shaved away all this depth. Yeah, I. But see, and this is a little bit of the contrarian in me because you you know that we we agree at a baseline about the the flaws of the order and everything. But it's sort of like the road to hell being paved with good intentions because I can yeah. see why the mandate is so important to the Jedi is because whenever the mandate mandate was put in place, there is a recognition on the part of the Jedi how easy it would be Yoda speaks to this in the book how easy a temptation it is to want to rule to say right listen we know the better way to do this you're going to listen to us and they know that the dark side leads that way and so I want to give them a little bit of a break at this point because while the mandate is crippling in terms of their connection to each other and maybe even the Force, I don't know any way that the Jedi could have existed in the Republic in any official capacity without it, which, of course, speaks to the fact 
The Jedi shouldn't have been connected to the government in the first place. Right. Absolutely not. That's the point. But it it almost you could almost read Yoda's interactions in this book as somebody who has lived with this conflict for so long that it's it's just worn down to the bone with him. And that's why, you know, he might get a little short tempered with Qui-Gon and say, you know, this is why I didn't even want you on the council, honestly. I knew this was going to happen. You know, like, obviously, he says it much more Yoda-like than I just did, but there, there's very much Pretty that much sense. Pretty much what he's saying. Yeah, but, but you can very much get the sense of Yoda being almost exhausted by this point of, uh, how, how, why do I have to keep dealing with these? Pro- and, of course, Yoda's going to come to his own realization by the end of Revenge of the Sith of, yeah, wow, I should have, yeah, we should have led the charge and got, gotten away from this a long time ago. But it's well, and you know part of that you know it brings to mind this this idea that the the mandate becomes a almost a vestige of the Jedi fear of that mm. and and that fear actually leads them to like you were saying kind of overcorrect in a way instead of trusting the Force. You know, mm. because they've put all these rules in place to keep them from doing a certain thing because they know that it's bad, right? Instead of just trusting that the force will keep them in line. And that lack of trust in the force is what I think kind of gets them to that place. And and I think that, you know, again, that fear kind of seeps into all these other things, their fear of attachment. So that so many of the Jedi, it seems like they're kind of afraid to even talk about it, you know, with each other or in a larger setting with each other and 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 just acknowledge, yeah, these feelings exist. We got to we got to we got to do something about them so that, you know, it's like it, fear has really led them to put a lot of legalistic rules in place, but then have a, not allowed them to have the tools needed to really work through those as beings you know um it's left them um kind of in the dark and so i think that's you know something that's really it's kind of it's sad to see when you read a book like this yeah so john i wanted to ask you so we have a couple of other characters who kind of end up being uh you know main characters here um which is rahana and pax who are jewel thieves on a very fun ship that has like a scattering field that makes part of their ship, you know, uh, unscannable. And uh, I wanted to know what you, you know, thought of these uh, these two characters. I thought they were interesting characters. Uh, the concept of somebody raised for 15 years with protocol droids and what that would do to warp their uh, human interactions uh, was interesting. Um, I enjoyed seeing their arc. Uh, develop. I thought Rahara was very interesting because her character was an in specifically to the concept of the limits of the Republic in terms of enforcing the slave trade, um, which was which is fascinating because it that that is like one of those great unanswered threads from Anakin's life is. You know, he had a dream that he came back and he freed all the slaves, and that never happened, uh, so far as we know. Um, and so we see, uh, we see it set up already. What we're going to get in the Phantom Menace, where the Jedi are bound by that very same mandate 
not to show up and free slaves every time they encounter them. But it's such a, it really is sort of like a mind bending philosophical question of if you were to encounter something like that, how could you, how could you not? But, but at the same time, it speaks to, you know, the, the corporation is so incredibly powerful and such a huge economic powerhouse. And again, it gets to fear. It's just like the Trade Federation leverages that too. People are afraid to move against the corporations, these giant, you know, the, whether it's the Trade Federation or the Mining Guild or whatever, they're afraid to move against them because of the impact to their material world and their, their comfort. And so they're willing to self-limit their involvement in righting certain wrongs by justifying it as saying, well, it's for the greater good that we look the other way on something like this. And that, Rohara wound up being a great way to humanize that sort of, uh, that sort of conflict of interest of, you know, this has a very real personal impact on somebody like her. And to encounter the very people that, she could very justifiably say, why aren't you out there taking care of this problem? I, you know, her, I, I found her to be a very interesting and sympathetic character. And I thought that, that, that Pax played off of her very well. And, uh, you know, I thought they were a very interesting duo. Yeah, I really, I, I completely agree. I really liked both of these characters. I thought that they were really fun. Um, you know, you mentioned with Pax, the idea of him, having been lost on a ship by himself uh, as a young child uh, in, you know, close to wild space and having been raised for most of his life by protocol droids, you just think of, of what that would do to a poor person um, being raised Hmm. by a bunch of three POs and, um, (laughs) and exactly what you think is what we get in the book. And I think that's fantastic. You know, I think Claudia Gray really taps into uh, what that person would be like. And they're not the easiest person in the world to get along with. But the relationship between Rahana and Pax is so interesting. And I think um, it really does bring some life outside of all of the stuff going on with the Jedi here, which is great. Really appreciate that. Um, and like you mentioned, you know, it leads us into something that's really big in this book, which is this Zerka Corporation who Mm -hmm. has been around, some say, as long as the Republic itself. So this is something that has truly, like, become entrenched in the galaxy in a way that would be difficult to... It's like, when they say it's too big to fail, like, the Zerka (laughs) Corporation is too big to fail at this point. You know, they... And they have found a way to continue continually get their way in their business by getting a by circumventing all the laws so if you think it's bad for corporations to put their money in like you know offshore accounts uh that's what the zirka corporation does with morals yeah yes that's that's a great way to put it that really (laughs) is a great way to put it this is this is what is so scary then about this 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 whole thing and i think 
it was fascinating to see the way that this played into a section of the book, which I, I really, I, following the light. And mm-hmm. Qui-Gon tells Rail that we don't turn toward the light because it means someday we'll win some sort of cosmic game. We turn toward it because it's the light. Mm-hmm. And Qui-Gon and this is where it kind of connects with the rest of the story with where, uh, you know, uh, Rahana and Pax kind of impact the rest of the story. Qui-Gon is struggling with this idea of, like you mentioned earlier, Yoda says it would be so easy for us to rule. And Qui-Gon is stuck with, but what do we do in light of knowing what's right and and, and it not being right? Like, where do... Uh, do we do what's right or we do what our mandate is like and and it it there's this rock in a hard place for him as a character and it's really brought to a head when we see what the Zerker corporation is doing which is basically it's found a way to create slavery but do it legally and mm-hmm. to circumvent all of the you know republic uh rules against slavery by um turning it into corporate ease and it's just disgusting but that in and of itself is something that and you know what and i'm i'm going to say this with relish because i know that a lot of people um were repelled from the prequels because of the procedural natures of them when they would deal with the the workings of government and the 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 corruption inherent in things that you know, the bureaucrats are in charge. Like there were a lot of cries. I remember back in 99 of people, that's not star Wars to me and stuff like that. Well, it is. Um, and it's always been there. And I think that gray taps that vein with Zerka very, very much in setting up that frustration of the corruption in the Republic and with Zerka in specific to your point about circumventing the laws, how slick a powerful corporation can be to make the phrase just a little bit obscure so that, okay, if somebody has a problem, Oh, well, you know, we'll work on an amendment to that or we'll, oh, you, you, and you have to sue in the courts and maybe the courts go for you or maybe they don't. And like you said, I love the way you put it, that they put their morals in an offshore account because it's all about simply keeping the corporation going. So there's not even an immorality to Zerka. There's an amorality because nothing matters except its own survival. And so in a sense, it's a fascinating extension almost of, a, you know, a predatory animal out in the wild where you can't bargain with a shark. Shark's going to eat you or it's not. And if it, if it passes you by, it doesn't mean that the shark has had a change of heart. It just means it's going to eat something else. And eventually it'll get to you. And I like that is, um, I mean, I love that type of stuff. And I, I think it's also such an important thing to work into the morality play that is Star Wars and to act as that cautionary tale and that it's not a, uh, you know, it, it's not it's not like a quote unquote partisan issue. Everybody can agree about this and and about the dangers of it. And uh, so I, I just I relished the Zerka Corporation, but also because not just because of that cautionary aspect to it, but it was also a 
it, it seemed a callback to the sort of stories that would have influenced the formation of Star Wars and its world building. Uh, you know, the old uh, Charles Dickens stories about how, you know, the, the, the child labor worked and stuff like that. And, um, you know, so, so like, you know, Dickens comes to mind and it, I think that in and of itself is a really cool thing. And I think that's why this works so particularly well. Well, and it, Again, it really fits the the thing to show just how far the Republic and the Jedi have come and the corrupting influence that this has all been. Because, you know, the fact that the Republic and the Jedi are not willing to step in when knowing that a corporation does these kind of things and, and censure them, uh, you know, and all of that kind of stuff, um, it it shows how again it just shows how far they've come you know like the 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 corrupting nature of where the 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 entire galaxy even is at this moment and it's um it's something that's subtle and it's one of those things here too it's like even a jedi like qui-gon who we you know we hold up as as being somebody who who we feel like really understood uh the force and and was uh you know a force for good and the galaxy didn't even know what he didn't know until he knew it because it had been so well hidden and now that it's been uncovered he is he doesn't necessarily know how to live with it because he knows there's nothing that the jedi can do because there's nothing the republic is going to do with this and, and that, I think, also speaks to um, why the Jedi are so ill-equipped even to participate in the government in any fashion, is they're operating with a presumption that uh, so many of us would, which is, no, I haven't really looked at the treaty. I mean, the treaty's done by, you know, the Republic looked over it and certain people looked at it. And then somebody says, yeah, but this specific phrase in our culture means it's in perpetuity forever period. Amen can never be amended sort of thing. Oh, really? And it's, you don't want a Jedi sitting there doing paperwork and taking legal courses. That's not what a Jedi does, but in order to truly be involved in these sorts of things, you know, they're sent there as representatives to, uh, be, to bear witness to the signing of the treaty and the coronation the Jedi have no place to do that at all. Why are you sending Jedi? That doesn't make any that you know that in and of itself doesn't make any sense. It's more a show of the Republic's power more than anything else. Of you'd better right. be dealing straight with us. And, and well, it's and all at this for moment, show. they were sent because Rail asked for them. He asked for Jedi specifically. But yes, uh, yes. overall, like moments like this, this is not really a Jedi but, thing to do. <laughs> But rail asking for them shouldn't even be enough. Rail being mm, there yeah. is enough of a consideration. And him reaching out and saying, hey, send two Jedi over. The fact that he could make the request, the Jedi Council should have said, no, this is a treaty ceremony. Somebody has to go over there and look at the document and make sure everything's right. That This is, you know, speaks to, you know, what, what we've been saying, that the Jedi are not equipped for this type of lifestyle. Well, and and I mean, even the fact that this is a moment where, you know, there is there are a lot of other extenuating circumstances, like they're having Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan go to also investigate all of the disturbances that are happening as well. And it just seems like, again, it's very strange to have 
the Jedi be this type of police force? Right. You know, why are the Jedi a police force? And so... Right, which which gets to um, something that, that really jumps out, again, from the Phantom Menace, right? Is they're sent on another mission like that. And the f- one of the first exchanges from the Trade Federation, uh, when TC-14 goes and says, you know, the ambassadors are Jedi Knights, I believe, they haven't even told the Federation that it's Jedi Knights. And the reaction from the Federation is, I knew it, they're here to force a settlement. And so that speaks to the police force. I, I lovingly referred to the Jedi um, a long time ago as the thugs of the old Republic. The Jedi <laughs> show up and it means the Republic wants the situation handled and over with. And you're afraid of the Jedi. You don't want the lightsabers coming out. So everybody behave. I mean, nobody wants line. aggressive negotiations, John. That's true. No. Well, I prefer them. But hey, you know, that's just <laughs> that's me. <laughs> No, I just, I, I think that this, you know, kind of getting towards the end here, I, I think the thing that, that um, Gray is able to do here is to immediately tap into the milieu that George Lucas had created, right, of the prequels and what's going on in this time period and what is leading the Jedi down a certain road and what leads certain Jedi, like a Qui-Gon Jinn, to be able to maybe rise above that and to find another way. And, you know, when we talked about the importance of legacy, I think we see here how important Qui-Gon is to the way that Obi-Wan is going to turn out. Mm -hmm. I mean, Obi-Wan continues to be that same character who is falling down a sinkhole and is telling his master to leave because he's more worried about his master's life than he is his own. Mm -hmm. Obi-Wan continues to be that character. And part of that is because I think that Qui-Gon is able to continually reinforce the best of who Obi-Wan is to make him that perfect Jedi, quote unquote, right? Mm -hmm. And that legacy that Qui-Gon leaves, I think is actually one that is, is really important. And when you think about it, Obi-Wan then helps train Luke, who redeems Vader. So, in many ways, Qui-Gon is, is, I feel like, if we're kind of going on legacy, Qui-Gon, I believe, kind of starts a new legacy. Because he's also the one that teaches Obi-Wan and Yoda how to reemerge out of the Force. And so, he, he actually, because of his uniqueness and his disregard for the Council... He starts a new legacy. So maybe we should say the rise of Qui-Gon instead of the rise of Skywalker. Do you know how on board I'd be for that movie? If they had episode nine, the rise of Qui-Gon, <laughs> like I'd already be sitting outside of the movie theater. I'd Let's be like, sorry, do it. sorry, boss, I'm telecommuting from the pavement, like from now on. Because, wow, that would be, I, I mean, seriously. out this movie forever. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, wow, I, I'd be... Oof, boy, that would be great. Um, no, I, I, yeah, no, I, Qui-Gon is uh, an absolutely magical character. And I think that the, part of it, of course, is Neeson's performance. But I think part of it also is the fact that he was written originally for the Phantom Menace and structured in such a way. I've always been drawn to him. I've always thought of Qui-Gon as just 
an amazing character with a lot of depth and it is um it that's only been reinforced as the clone war series with this book going back and re rereading uh jedi apprentice qui-gon is that he's not perfect but he's that he's that guy who's humble enough to recognize his imperfection and it therefore makes him even better and it you know this book too we follow him on a journey where he realizes that it's his fault that the relationship with Obi-Wan isn't working properly and that he needs to address it and he needs to fix these things and that is something that all of the Jedi, like it's that humility, you know, the arrogance of the Jedi is something that's called out quite a bit in the prequels and in the clone wars. And you Qui-Gon is able finally to reach out from beyond the grave to help Yoda and Obi-Wan. And again, this is just another instance. This book is just another instance of where I wonder how things could have been if he'd survived Naboo, how different things would have been if he had. Yeah, I, I think what you said there and the legacy, you know, of Qui Gon of him realizing that he needs to fix it, and I love the humility of him realizing in the moment when Obi Wan says, "You could have just told me that," that that's the key, and that humility again of 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 being able to make a change. Not because you figured something out, but because somebody said something to you and you truly listened mm -hmm. and then made a change. And I think, again, that like you were saying, that just really shows, I think, the specialness of Qui-Gon. You know, Qui-Gon's not perfect in, in the series. And I think that's the other thing that I really appreciate about this book is that it allows us to see some of his flaws. Um, but it, we also see a lot of the weaknesses we also see a lot of the strengths in this character to which I truly do think his legacy is one that, you know, I will, I'm going to say from now on literally changes the rest of the star Wars galaxy forever. Um, so I choose to believe that just like Obi-Wan at the end of this book, choosing to believe, which I, John, we'd be remiss if uh, we did not rate this book. Mm. And so I'm kind of wondering, um, I don't know. Where are you? As much as I love and as much as we have had such a fruitful, deep conversation, there are a couple of things that uh, work against the book for me. Um, I think that the resolution is a little too fast. Um, as much as I enjoy uh, learning why, and I was waiting for it the whole book. I knew it was coming. I was waiting for it the whole book. Finding out why Obi-Wan hates flying, <laughs> like <laughs> having the traumatic incident. I was laughing while I was reading it. I thought it was brilliant. Um, but there are a couple of there are a couple of points where um, she jumps around with these quick transitions at the beginning of a chapter where it's, you know, two paragraphs here, two paragraphs here, two paragraphs here, two paragraphs. And while that uh, can work easily in a in a film or a television format, I don't think it translates particularly well to those moments in the book here. But I still I mean, I mean, it's Claudia Gray writing a Star Wars book, so this is a four out of five for me. I I thoroughly enjoyed it, and as is obvious from this conversation, 
there's a lot to talk about and think about. Uh, where did you end up? Yeah, I mean, and I just want to say too, I mean, I feel like there's so much we could continue to talk about in this book, honestly, um, and we just didn't get a chance to do that. But um, for me, I think uh, I would put this, I'm going to, I'm actually going to give this a uh, a good five out of five. Um, now, okay. I will say um, that doesn't make it a perfect book. I do think, like you said, the resolution is a little bit quick. Um, obviously I think she t- did telegraph, uh, the, the not flying, liking flying, but I, like you, I thought it was such a, a clever way to make Obi-Wan go from somebody who likes flying to hating flying pretty quickly. Very fun. Um, I also, uh, really enjoy his first moment riding a Varactyl, um, and realizing yes. that he really likes, you know, uh, living mounts instead of flying, um, in, in that way. So I, I thought that brought a lot of fun to him, you know, being such a good writer, basically, in, in episode three. I thought that was really fun. Um, so there's little connections like that. And honestly, just the way that I feel like this book continues to kind of help crack open the prequel era and create so many seeds that now I want more stuff on. It's fantastic. But the best thing I think about this book, John, is that I want more. I want her to continue the story of Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan now because there's some really cool stories to tell about Qui-Gon searching um, for more about the Force, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as, you know, I mean, we still don't have that story about them on Mandalore, and I feel like an entire book written by Claudia Gray when they're on the run for a year on Mandalore would be fantastic. It would. And you know what? While you're, you know, you bring up some really good points and I'm going to go ahead and nudge it up to a four and a half because. Nice, man. Well, the thing is, I'm not going to, I shouldn't be deducting a whole star for a couple of, uh, for lack of a better term, like procedural matters here or there in the book, because the characters are interesting. The characters are well-developed and I, I, you know, just replaying it in my head while you were talking yeah, we could keep talking about this book. This is one of those types, just like her, uh, just like Bloodline. I could talk about that book for days. There's so much in there, and there's so much in here too. And this is the role. If you're going to treat these books as the new authoritative broadening of the stories, these are as authoritative as Clone Wars or The Mandalorian. Then this is the type of book I want to read. And that I will, I will, I could see myself going back and revisiting and rereading this book because I did enjoy it that much. So yeah, four and a half, four and a half. Yeah, and I see. I really appreciate you said that because it brings to mind, you know, the fact that I did read this book when it had right before it got released because I got the review copy and I wrote the review and then you know I wrote it, I read it again and I actually enjoyed it as much the second reread as I did the first reread and part of that was just really getting to mull over all of these ideas again. So mm-hmm. 100% agree. I think you're absolutely right. Um, so I just, this has been so much fun. This is one of those like classic Matt and John's Star Wars book mm-hmm. episodes, Star Wars episodes. Uh, and I hope that you enjoyed it. You can tell, I think that John and I have such a passion for, for this material, uh, especially when it is presented in a way like Claudia Gray does. So Claudia, write all the books. Um, all thank the books. you so much <laughs> for listening. Uh, we want to say a huge thank you to our associate producers, 
uh, through Patreon. Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Wymolette, and Daniel Noah, they have been supporting the show for quite a while now. And honestly, we couldn't do this show without them and their support. We couldn't do the network either. Uh, this is a very big network, and there's so much happening on it each and every week. We really do need your support. It costs quite a bit to put this on. So please go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can become part of the team and support us uh, and make sure all of the quality content here on Trek FM keeps coming to you each and every week. Now, John, uh, always a blast to have you back in the place where we first met, the 602 Club. Uh, but before I let you go, of course, uh, where can everybody find you if they wanted to catch up with you and maybe talk some more Master and Apprentice? Well, uh, my online moniker is Kessel Junkie. Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter now and then. Um, you can also find me over on, on uh, Letterboxd and Goodreads, and uh, I've been writing over on KesselJunkie.com. Uh, and if you want to hear any further thoughts just about uh, movies in specific, the ones from 1994, go over to the Nerd Party and listen to me and Mike Schindler talking about the movies of 1994 one week at a time over on Retro Perspective. And uh, speaking of the Nerd Party, uh, there's another show that I'm on. It's actually a Star Wars-focused podcast called uh, Aggressive Negotiations. Wow, I think I've heard of it. Mm-hmm. Possibly. It's pretty interesting. There's a guy on there that I talk with. He's wrong from time to time. But I enjoy talking to him. He's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, he is wrong from time to time. He's readily, he readily admits it. Um, it's me. <laughs> uh, we do do aggressive negotiations, and it is fantastic. So I hope that you will check that out. Um, you can find me on many of the places that John is. Uh, I am at Rushing02 on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Uh, you can also find me here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones, talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And I'm over on the Nerd Party Network as well doing Owl Post with Drea Kaufman as we talk about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time. And then last but not least, if you'd like to hear me talk about film but through the lens of faith, uh, I do that with my good friend Courtney where we talk about uh, movies all over the genres um, uh, through that lens. So, But we want to say thank you so much for joining us, and may the Force be with you. <laughs> <laughs>